I think I should briefly introduce myself. Uh, as I said earlier, my name is Craig Palmer, and I've been uh, hanging around here involved in a number of programs for uh, several years. And then before that, I was involved in Zen, sort of Zen. When I uh, get to give a talk, usually what I really have an interest in talking about is to trying to teach what I'm trying to learn and what I'm practicing. I just have more energy for it if I'm learning it, and so. Uh, this is such a talk. Uh, the topic for tonight's talk is the, basically the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering. But much more interesting than something dry like that is the title for tonight's talk. Uh, at the office, they always ask you to give a title for your talk, and I'm not very creative. I'm kind of a straight-ahead flower, the other thing. And so when I came up with the title, uh, my wife is a creative one, and so I uh, I asked her for help. I said, the title I've come up with is so boring and it puts me to sleep. And she says, what is it? And I said, well, it's about Dukkha and the refuges. And, and <laughs> she, she says, well, what's it about? So I tried to explain to her what it's about. And actually, we work together. This is very nice. This didn't used to happen in the past. And the title that we came up with is Friending the dark underbelly of suffering. Now <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's got something to it, right? Uh, okay. uh, and what I'm talking about is grounded in what I've picked up in the past year. Part is what Mark Nunberg, I'm going to refer to Mark often, so unless I say, Mark the Apostle or something like that. <laughs> Mark taught in an eight-day retreat last August. Part is what Jack Cornfield teaches on karma and forgiveness in his 20-year-old book, Path with Heart. And what I'm relying most heavily on is Ajahn Sumedho's 2005 book, the Sound of Silence. I've been reading it every morning and reflecting upon it in my morning morning meditations. Uh, Semedo is an American, but he's been a monk for over 40 years, and his teachings give me a new perspective on mindfulness. And I think he's a year or two older than I am, so I really like that. <laughs> uh, in his 
earlier book, uh, which was called The Mind and the Way. It was a collection of Dharma talks he gave at his center in England. And, uh, and I suppose it sounds like it was similar to the kind of talks Mark gives to the weekly practice groups here. And so the, the book is, is a talk and then some questions. Uh, and the, when he talked about the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering. At the end of his talk, he was asked a question. The question was, when you say the end of suffering, do you mean mental suffering or physical suffering? I paused right there, didn't read on. Gee, I wonder how he's going to answer that. That's really an interesting question. (laughs) And it really shocked me. He says, When I say the suffering that ceases, I'm speaking about the suffering you create for yourself. You got that? (laughs) What do you think? Do you believe it? Do we create our own suffering? That's what I'm saying. One of Buddha's not often cited teachings, the one I call the second dart, uh, or sometimes the second arrow, it's really called the dart, the Salvata Sutta. And it goes something like this. When an untaught worldling which is what we are, is touched by a painful bodily feeling. He worries and grieves. He laments, beats his breast, weeps, and is distraught. He thus experiences two kinds of feeling, a bodily feeling and a mental feeling. It is if a man were pierced by a dart and following the first piercing, he is hit by a second dart. So that person will experience feelings caused by two darts. And then he contrasts this, which people that none of us are, a well-taught noble disciples, when he is touched by a painful feeling, he will not worry, not grieve and lament. He will not beat his breast and weep, nor will he be distraught. It is one kind of feeling he experiences a bodily one, but not a mental feeling. It is, it is as if a man were pierced by a dart, but was not hit by a second dart. So what's your case of suffering? Is it one dart or two darts? Well, I don't know about any of you, so what I'm going to do is tell you a little bit about what my suffering was for me. Uh, in the 80s, which is a long time ago now, I was treated by a psychologist for chronic depression. I think I had my roots in childhood and the child's misunderstandings and fears. And I never matured out of that, uh, at least until middle age. And one day when I was leaving the psychologist's office, 
there was a, a popular self-help book laying on the table, and as we walked by, he paused, and he pointed at that, and he gave me a wry smile, as he sometimes did. He's a pretty personable guy. And he says, uh, oh, and the title of the book was, I'm Okay, You're Okay. <laughs> Some of you heard of that book. When he pointed that book, and he said to me, Craig, you're not okay. <laughs> now wait, he didn't stop there. He said, and I'm not okay. But that's okay. And it took me a period of time before I got the meaning of that. But that was so free. You know, I'm not okay. <laughs> He's not okay. But that's okay. We're human. We're not perfect. I don't really... It kind of freed me so I didn't have to make my mommy proud of me anymore <laughs> at the age. At my middle age. Okay. Let's see. Because that's what was that's what was driving me into my depression. When I made mistakes, I knew it, but I wouldn't accept the blame. I tried to push the blame once off on somebody else. It took me a long time to see that, but I didn't want my mommy to catch me making her ashamed of me. I do understand what the second dart is about. I do understand Samato's answer that the suffering that ends is the suffering we create for ourselves. But still, until till very recently, there is a carryover of these feelings of suffering, but they were much more subtle. It has to do with karma or deeply developed personality types, or habitual ways of thinking. And and Zen, these are sometimes called three poisonous minds. And and the same things exist in Vipassana, or the teachings of the Buddhas. Greed, aversion, or delusion. You know, and I've heard really good Dharma teachers give talks about, well, I thought I was the aversive types, but I was really a delusion. <laughs> you know, well, yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I think there maybe is a little bit of each one in all of us, but I think my, my most predominant type seems to be aversion. Well, it still happens, but less frequently. The first thing I do is look for what's wrong. Coming in here, what's wrong with this room? I just feel better, you know. <laughs> and, and, uh, but but where, where it's more of a problem is at home. I, I'm the first one to get up in our house in the morning, and I go out in the kitchen 
and without even being aware of it, my eyes are looking around, and I see where my wife has left something that she shouldn't have left there. And so I make a point of letting her know about it. (laughs) It's in the wrong place. I must do something to call attention to her mistake. And and um, so I would leave something, you know, and uh, that would send a very subtle message. <laughs> Teacher lesson. <laughs> you know, we've been married for 53 years, and it has never once worked. <laughs> totally oblivious to all these helpful hints on the <laughs> Well, it's our own problem. Uh, <laughs> thanks to the practice of what Sumedho calls intuitive awareness, I don't always have to go down that path anymore. It's changing. The difference now is I'm aware of my reactions. Sometimes, almost as soon as they arise, and sometimes they don't arise at all. I just look at yeah. What difference does it? There's two ways of doing things, you know. Who says mine is right? Usually when there's this little bit of a, you know, carryover, I, uh, my reaction is to chuckle at myself. But, but I know from the experience of going through this and through the meditations that I do, that I can feel this, I don't know how other to describe it than this yucky feeling, and I don't like it. I don't want to have that yucky feeling anymore. And the times when I'm not aware, when I get caught up in it, just, I I, I don't know, but I am headed for suffering, and it's only a question of how much suffering before I wake up. You know, it can go on for a period of time. Well, that's how it is for me. How am I doing on time? I'm okay, I don't know. What? I'm sorry, what? I'll stop. Well, I want to get some more stuff in before you stop me. (laughs) I'm just trying to figure out what to cut short. I want to talk a little bit from uh, uh, Samedo's book, um, The Sound of Silence. And and I see what he has in here is a, a skillful mean to help end suffering. So I'm just going to read some stuff here. This, this is from two chapters, I believe. One is intuitive awareness, and the other is personal identification. That's where a lot of the suffering comes from. 
We waste our lives creating a sense of identification. We create a whole realm of, allu- of illusions, personality, and identity through which the perceptions that we create in our minds uh, have no essence. We feel very threatened when these illusions are challenged. There is even a sense of stability when people identify themselves with illness or addictions. We get a sense that we know who we are and can justify the way that we are. Quote, it's just the way I am. Quote, I have my rights. Quote, why is everybody always picking on me? Ask yourself calmly, can you recall a specific instance where you have reacted in one manner something like this? It's just the way I am. I have my rights. I shouldn't be treated the way I am. Just try to relax and remember your feelings at that time as best you can. Remember, the point of mindfulness meditation is not to get rid of our faults, but the point is to observe how our mind works. Awareness is a wisdom faculty that is not judgmental. It does not evaluate the quality of things, saying one is better than the other. Awareness discerns the way it is. Awareness is interested in the way the mind works. I start thinking I like this, I don't like that. What tomato calls intuitive awareness is not criticizing or judging. It is aware. It is discerning. And in the, in the discernment, the development of wisdom takes place. It is a reflective discernment. A noticing that helps that helps us lose the personal identity, lose the momentum of our habitual way of thinking. Samedo says, awareness is not something you create, you recognize it. It's like this. My mood is like this. My body is like this. My breath is is like this. Awareness is not self. It is anatta. Am I going to take refuge in my own personality? which gets me into trouble every time I do something? Or do I take refuge in awareness, 
just observing the present moment. As you develop confidence and awareness, you're freeing yourself from the habits you've acquired. You are not getting rid of them, but you're freeing yourself from the compulsion of having to follow those habits. You are recognizing things as they are. You accept it. You are patient with it. You receive it. And then, just let it be what it is. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that towel being left on the table that way. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> no, it's not really interesting. <laughs> but, but it's more interesting than getting angry and saying something hurtful or crying to and just creating more tension. And then in, in Sumedho's chapter on Anatta, there's this sentence. Awareness is the way out of suffering. Wow. Remember that sentence, okay. We have all kinds of, view, of views about our abilities, our worth, and all that. We tend to get stuck in neurotic fears, anxieties, and worries about who we are. I recall Mark saying, I don't know at what deal, you know, I was attending, but he says, yeah, sometimes we neurotically follow our breath. And I remember that because, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's see, what was I saying there before I get off on that? Neurotic fears, anxieties, and worries about who we are. Sumedho said that during meditation, you can experiment with I am, and you can create anything you want to be. I am powerful. I am beautiful. I am adored by everybody. Everybody loves this talk I'm giving. <laughs> I am nobody. I am nothing just a cog in a wheel. Yes, he says, you can do that. You can feel what it's like. You can listen to it. But don't believe it. Just observe. Be able to recognize a personality rather than having to become it and get lost in its habits. What a novel idea. 
Okay. The title. Friending the Dark Underbelly of Suffering. Uh, and really it does have something to do with this talk and the type of suffering I'm talking about. In European mythology, the dragon was very fierce. And there are three uh, well-known ones, I guess. But the oldest one is the Nordic Beowulf legend. And, and, uh, my wife got, at my request several years ago, she got me the, uh, Sean Haley's, uh, version of Beowulf. And on the one page it had the old English, and on the other it had, you know, modern English, so I could read it. But her favorite cousin was visiting us, and her, she's a linguist, and a chair in a Big Ten college, and, she had lived in Iceland to study the uh, old English language and in Norway. And so as it was getting dark, she took that book and she started reading in the old English. And I'll tell you that, you know, it's just getting dark out. And it made the hairs on the back of my head. And you can imagine people in the mead halls, you know, drinking a lot of mead in the dark. And it it is very fearful. And um, so going back then to the time of the legend of Baal and the mead halls, what these myths were about, as I understand it, is to teach men what heroes must do. They must engage in a fight to the death against overwhelming odds to protect their people, to protect their sangha. They must face a huge, fierce, killing monster with its weapons of fire claws, huge and very sharp pointy teeth, and they must get close, its only vulnerable spot is its underbelly, and they must get close enough with a magic sword that they can push it into its underbelly. That's their only chance. In our world, we don't think there are any fire-breathing dragons. But we all face dramatic suffering of one sort or another. And our dramatic sufferings are often so painful that we fear to face them. We just want to be rid of them. So perhaps without knowing it, we are doing battle with our suffering. We want to kill it. Is there a better way? Is there a better way for us to deal with our painful sufferings? I think so. How about friending the dragon? Facing our fears and facing our suffering. And yes, I'm talking about the practice of mindfulness meditation. Yes, instead of having to slay suffering, by sticking a sword in a soft underbelly of the beast, perhaps we can friend our painful feelings of suffering. 
Well, I think what I read about Samedo, being aware, not trying to get rid of it, just being with it in the moment to play with it is one way. A second skillful mean is from Jack Cornfield's uh, book, A Path with Heart. I believe this is 1991. It's one of the first study books I ever bought. And he has a chapter in here on karma. Because that's what we're facing in our suffering. And he also, in, at the end of that chapter, one of the things to help to deal with our karma, he has a meditation on forgiveness. And um, I'm going to read some of his words, but and at the end of the chapter, he has this meditation on forgiveness. But you can... Um, you can Google a whole chapter in that meditation. I'd recommend doing that meditation a few times. Just go online and Google Jack Cornfield Forgiveness Meditation, and it comes right up, and I think it's the first one. You get the whole chapter. So anything I might read here is in there as well as that meditation. And I, and I now use that in this uh, forgiveness workshop I do here at Common Ground. But let me just, how am I doing here? Oh, I got, I got time. I'm going to read a few of his quotes. Uh, he has kind of, I like, he has a little bit softer words, uh, like on the, uh, instead of greed, anger, and delusion, he'll talk about wanting, uh, aversion, and uh, confusion. You know, it's not quite so judgmental. If I can find what I wanted to read here. The law of karma describes the way that cause and effect govern the patterns that repeat themselves throughout all life. Karma means that nothing arises by itself. Every experience is conditioned by that which precedes it. Already he's pointing to the way of how to end suffering that we create. The tendencies and habits of our mind are similarly karmic patterns that we repeat over and over. We live in a sea of conditioning patterns that we repeat over and over, yet we rarely notice this process. Very important point. We can understand the workings of karma in our lives most clearly by looking at this process of cause and effect in our ordinary activities and by observing how the repetitive patterns of our own mind affect our behavior. Yeah, I'm going to teach her a lesson. These, uh, let's see. These patterns and tendencies are often much stronger than our conscious 
intentions. See, I may have an intention not to pick a quarrel with my old wife, but I don't have a chance. I'm working by in, just by intention. It's the karma is too strong. These patterns and tendencies are often much stronger than our conscious intentions. Whatever our circumstances, it is old habits that will create the way we live. Long-repeated circumstances and mental attitudes become the condition for what we call personality. There we go again. Our personalities become conditioned according to past causes. Sometimes it is apparent, but very often habits that stem from distant and unremembered past go unnoticed. Oh, I didn't want my mommy to be ashamed of me. It was long forgotten. If we are not aware, our life will simply follow the pattern of our past habits over and over and over again. But if we can awaken, we can make conscious choices in how we respond to the circumstances in our life. We may not be able to change our outer circumstances, I mean, she still might leave stuff out of place in the kitchen. But with awareness, we can always change our inner attitude. And this is enough to transform our life. Even in the worst external circumstances, even in the worst external circumstances, we can choose whether we meet life from fear and anger or with compassion and understanding. You see, but not just by intentions, not just by having good thoughts. Transforming the patterns of our life is always done in our heart to understand how to work with the karmic patterns in our life. We must see that karma has two distinct aspects, that which is the result of our past and that karma which our present responses are creating for our future. We receive the results of past action. This we cannot change. But as we respond in the present, we can create new karma. We sow the karma to see the new results. The development of awareness and meditation allows us to become mindful enough or conscious enough to recognize our heart intentions and intentions as we go through the day. You know, it takes a lot of work to do that. We can be aware of the different states of fear, wanting, confusion, jealousy, and anger. We can know when forgiveness or love or generosity is connected with our actions. When we know this, what state is in our heart, we begin to have a choice about the patterns we will follow. 
Try working with this kind of awareness in your life. Practice it with your speech. Pay very careful attention. As you speak about the smallest matter, is your intention to protect, to grasp, to defend yourself? Is your intention to open out of concern, compassion, or love? Once you notice the intention, then become aware of the response you give. As we become more aware of our own intention and actions, karma shows itself to us more clearly. Karmic fruit even seems to come more quickly, maybe simply because we notice it. As we pay attention, the fruit of whatever we do seems to manifest more quickly. And I found that to be true. I have a few minutes left. At an eight-day retreat at Holy Spirit last August, Mark asked us to consider whether, quote, are we moving in the direction where life is more satisfying, where we are more content? A longer retreat like that is a good place to contemplate such a question. After a few moments, Mark suggested that if it's not, we should pay attention to this, our strategy for reaching our goal and consider whether, whether our strategy and our actions are in, are in sync with our goal. You know, are my actions in accord with what I want to have happen? But with questions like these, is my life moving in such and such direction? Mark taught me years ago, and I can't remember what I'd come for him to him for help about something. We talked about the nuts and bolts a little bit, but then. He said, ask yourself the question, so like this, you know, it could be like this question that you're going to ask yourself about when you face, uh, uh, you face your suffering. He said, the important thing is not the answer, but it's keeping the question fresh. So, ask yourself the question. And an answer will come up, and don't pay too much attention to the answer. But then the next day, again, ask yourself the question, keep the question fresh, because the answer comes out of you. You know, it doesn't come with something to grasp onto. And, you know, life is a moving target. So as, as you keep the question fresh, your perspective will change. I used the term skillful means a couple of times, uh, one with regard to tomatoes, 
uh, intuitive awareness type of meditation. And I use it with respect to uh, Jack Cornfield's meditation on forgiveness. And a tomato, you know, I always thought skillful means I thought I knew what it meant. <laughs> well, that chance. Semedo uh, has the definition in, in the back of his book, uh, a poly word, but it's using different resources to realize the teachings of the Buddha. And, you know, I, I see that, you know, in, in various suttas that we study, for one guy, the Buddha will give one answer. And for another guy, or Dale, he'll give a different answer. And and he's not doctrinal. He's what what he's really saying is try different things because of your situation, because of of so and so situation. You know, he had explained that to Nada one time. Why didn't you tell him? You know uh, about Anata, Amanda. He said, "Why didn't you tell him?" And he said, "Well, if I would have told him, there's no self, well, then he would have gone off on that side. And if I told him there was a self, then he would have gone to that extreme. So he, he didn't answer. He, he wasn't doctrinal. So, um, and I think that's what Semedo's saying. As we go through some of these suggestions of uh, forgiveness, about facing your fear of, um, of your sufferings, uh, try different things. It, it, you know, just to play around with them, experiment a little bit. And liberally apply tomatoes relaxed approach to awareness in the here and now. I think it is helpful to develop a deeper understanding of the suffering we create for ourselves and for the Buddha's teaching of the second dark. Second, try to meditate as Samedo suggests, relaxing, accepting our shortcomings, just befriending ourselves and take an interest without judging, without criticizing. Third, consider Cornfield's teaching on karma and death. Read his text on what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. A lot of people that take the forgiveness workshop have a misunderstanding about that, and Jack is very clear in there about what that means. Uh, and and try to do that meditation because the words and it's talking about karma is helpful, you know, to understanding, but to actually do that meditation and then asking forgiveness for yourself has a certain amount of power and energy in it that might carry you through what just intellectual understanding doesn't do. So I would recommend do that. And finally, as Mark suggests, 
from time to time, ask yourself if you're moving toward where you are contented. Remember to keep the question fresh rather than trying to grasp the right answer. Mark usually ends by asking us to let go of the words. Zen Master Reuthen offers a very interesting admonition for letting go of words. He was an etiquette monk, begging daily for food, possessing only one robe and one bowl. He lived in a tumbled-down hut in the mountains in an area of Japan that was suffering from uh, recession. And he lived uh, 250 years ago. From letting go of the words, talk is always easy, practice always hard, it's no wonder people try to make up for the lack of hard practice with easy talk. But the harder they try, the worse things get. The more they talk, the more wrong they go. It's like pouring on oil to put out a fire. Just foolishness and nothing else. I forgot something. I was wondering why I had so much time for the talk. There's a question period. <laughs> so, please uh, ask your question. And uh, more important, you know, the answer will come to you. Keep the question fresh. Uh, if you want my comment, please speak up. I, I wear hearing aids, but it's still hard of hearing. So um, we have we have ten, a little less than ten minutes for a few questions. is it that we focus on the question instead of the outcome of the answer? Why is it? Oh, it's a why question. Oh. <laughs> I'm not very good with why questions. Uh, why do you suppose? <laughs> why do I suppose I'm not good with why? <laughs> I... Um, Through experience, I 
I always thought if I could get the, I was good at getting answers in academics. And um, I always thought there was an answer. I thought it's kind of a checklist for living life. You do this, then you do this, and then you do that. And the first time that changed my mind, I took an introductory class at the Zen Center. Judith Regeer led, do you know, any of you know who Judith Regeer is? She's a head teacher at um, Clouds and Water over in St. Paul. And it was a beginner's class. And so she had us sit for a week, and then we came back and asked questions. There were people there that really knew stuff. And, uh, and, but I said, well, what do you do when your leg falls asleep? And the way she answered that question is what changed my mind. Because I was looking for it. Well, you do this, and then you do this, and then you do that. And she said, what do you do when your leg falls asleep? You know, and she was just kind of reliving it. And then she just started talking out of her experience of what that was. And she hurt her nerve one time because she was too rigid. And, you know, it just, it just changed my whole perspective on things. Thank you. I guess the second part of an answer is nobody's going to give you an answer that's going to help you. You're going to have to find the answer yourself. At least that's part of my experience. Yes. How does that relate to uh, that uh, thing I've heard living in I don't know? Is that part of this? I'm sorry. How what? does that Re- relate to what? Relate to living in I don't know. I've never said that, have I? <laughs> <laughs> you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> what is it, stump the chop knife? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know mine. Gee, I don't remember. That's a long time ago. I don't remember. Tell us. What is it? <laughs> no, tell us. Clear. I'd like to know. Isn't that just sort of... Uh, the, 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 the freedom of suffering really is getting to comfort with, I don't know, because maybe that's the only answer. Well, yeah, that, that's really true. You know, uh, I guess my term was life is a moving target. Uh, I had pretty much the day set aside so that I could prepare 
coherent talk. <laughs> and uh, the phone rang at 7.30 this morning, and it was our 40-year-old son called from the emergency room. He had, he had hurt his knee really badly uh, working out at the gym early this morning. So, you know, so what, 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 if you'd asked me, you know, five minutes before that call, what I was going to do today, well, I was going to take my time and make a nice, I was going to make a nice talk. And, and then that, that changed things. So I don't know, you know. And, you know, we all live in that, and, and to some extent, with disease, uh, you know, I'm, I have, I have a disease that I've lived longer than what the doctors told me I would live. And, uh, uh, and Buddha's teaching, almost, Buddha and, and the, um, uh, the Sufi poet, uh, Rumi, uh, at the mystical end of the, of Islam, had this wonderful poem. Mark read it to us at Holy Spirit several years ago called Prayer is an Egg. And in the uh, Buddha's uh, uh, teachings, uh, there's one, they're both the same subject. It's uh, Yama, I believe, is the god of death in the Buddhist uh, uh, teachings, and in both instances, uh, the person has died or about to die, and he's called to the day of judgment. So both of these poems express deep wisdom about how to live your life and what's important. And, uh, so I don't know what the day of judgment will be. I know right now where I am uh, that it could be my time is fairly limited, so it's really important for me to do something, to, to get a move on, to, to do the things that I want to do, clear up things uh, with people, mostly with my kids, and to have fun and to let them know who I am, although they're not quite so interested in knowing that. <laughs> but uh, to take care of those sorts of things. And, uh, and there's more of a sense of urgency now which is what both of those poems were about, which I had forgotten, or both of those stories about Yama and about prayer as an egg. Well, thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.